To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Koreatown is one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Los Angeles. A peaceful, family-friendly neighborhood where neighbors all know each other. On May 5th, 2003, while neighbors celebrated Cinco de Mayo, a mother visited her daughter and her family. Within moments of entering the apartment, the mother frantically ran out into the streets screaming. She desperately screamed for help. Somebody shot her daughter. Koreatown would never be the same. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 136, The Miracle Mile Murders. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth, fact-based research, produce and edit this weekly show. As a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get early ad-free access to weekly episodes, shout-outs and episodes, priority on case suggestions, and access to weekly bonus episodes. Before we get into this week's show, we've got a few new supporters that I want to thank. Thank you so much to Ashley Q and Michael D for becoming patrons of the show. To support Forensic Tales, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales or simply click the link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's get into this week's episode. On May 5th, 2003, most Los Angeles, California residents were out celebrating Cinco de Mayo. People gathered at local bars and restaurants to eat, drink, and party. But for the residents of one Los Angeles apartment complex, this Cinco de Mayo was far from a celebratory night. That afternoon, the sound of screams shattered the early evening calm of a Los Angeles apartment building. The screams came from apartment 402, located at 630 South Missolin Avenue in the heart of Koreatown, Los Angeles. Usually a quiet place, Koreatown is one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Los Angeles. It's located slightly west of downtown LA and south of Hollywood. Totaling near three square miles, Koreatown was once the epicenter of Golden Age Hollywood home to the Ambassador Hotel, and the Brown Derby. But after the evening of May 5th, 2003, 
Koreatown was no longer simply known for its 24-hour businesses and ethnic restaurants. Seconds after the screams, a woman came running out of a fourth-floor apartment unit. Neighbors in the next-door units heard the screams and came out to see what was happening. The woman frantically said she needed help and to dial 911. Someone inside apartment 402 was dead. Within minutes, all available Los Angeles Police Department officers in the area swarmed the quiet apartment complex. It was unusual to receive a call in this part of town about a possible homicide. When the police officers arrived, the woman who alerted her neighbors led them to apartment 402. They walked through the two-bedroom apartment to the master bathroom. The horrific scene shocked the officers. Inside the cramped bathroom were two adult female bodies. One victim sat on the floor leaning against the bathroom wall with gunshot wounds to her head and arm. Her arms were bound together with packing tape, and her mouth was gagged. Her arms were crossed in front of her chest as if she were praying. The second female victim was found lying on her side inside of the bathtub. Like the other female victim, she'd also been shot in the head and chest. When the officers got closer to the second victim inside the bathtub, they made a gruesome discovery. There weren't simply two victims, there were three. Behind the second adult victim, officers discovered a third victim inside the bathtub. But unlike the first two victims, the third victim was a small child. The boy's body had been placed inside the bathtub next to the older adult female. But like the adults, he also had gunshot wounds to his chest and back. All three victims had been shot and killed, execution-style, inside of this small two-bedroom Los Angeles apartment. LAPD officers sat down and spoke with the woman who discovered the bodies and dialed 911. They needed to find out her connection to the victims and find out if she had any information about who might have done this. The woman, identified as Cosmos Chang, told investigators that the apartment belonged to her adult daughter. The victims inside the bathroom were 30-year-old Sharice Song, her 2-year-old grandson Nathan Song, and their 56-year-old nanny Eun Eek Min. She said she drove to the apartment that day to visit 2-year-old Nathan. After knocking on the front door and getting no answer, she decided to let herself into the apartment. She said she figured they weren't home and she would wait inside for them. While waiting inside the apartment, she noticed the door to the bathroom of the master bedroom was closed, but the lights were on. So she decided to open the bathroom door, and that's when she saw her daughter Sharice on the floor. Next to her were the bodies of Nathan and Un. Then she ran outside to get help from the neighbors. The brutality of the murders shocked investigators. Although violent crimes aren't entirely uncommon in big cities like Los Angeles, but there was something about these murders that seemed especially sinister, especially for this part of Los Angeles, commonly known as Miracle Mile. Miracle Mile is an area in the mid-Wilshire region of the city 
consisting of an almost two-mile stretch of Wilshire Boulevard. In the early 1920s, Wilshire Boulevard was nowhere near the high-traffic road it is today. Back then, it was a 20-foot-wide dirt road flanked by dairy farms and oil wells. In 1921, real estate developer A.W. Ross purchased the 18-acre land along the south side of Wilshire Boulevard between La Brea and Fairfax Avenues for $54,000. Ross purchased Miracle Mile, hoping to create a thriving retail district there. He wanted it to become just as popular as downtown Los Angeles. But Miracle Mile was in such a remote location that people had no way of getting there from downtown Los Angeles in the early 1920s. From downtown LA to Miracle Mile was a four-mile walk. Instead of giving up on the idea of Miracle Mile, Ross had an idea. Instead of people walking the four miles from downtown Los Angeles to Miracle Mile, people would drive there. He would leverage the rise in the growing industry of personal automobiles and create a way for people to get from downtown L.A. to his district. And he was right. By 1929, a Desmond's department store opened up inside the Wilshire Tower on Miracle Mile. The new department store featured a new concept for the late 1920s, a customer parking lot. They built a parking lot behind the department store that allowed for people to drive from downtown L.A. and park their cars in Miracle Mile. It was one of the first of its kind in the late 1920s. Other major retailers soon followed. Like Desmond's, they also built parking lots for their customers behind their buildings. First, it was Silverwoods in September 1929, then Coulter's. The May Company opened its new Wilshire branch at Fairfax two years later. Today, Miracle Mile is known to have some of Los Angeles' best museums, restaurants, bars, and shops. Miracle Mile is a kid-friendly neighborhood with paved sidewalks and a low crime rate of 5.5 per 10,000 residents. Just as quickly as LAPD officers set up their familiar yellow-red crime scene tape around the apartment complex, word about the triple homicide spread. Miracle Mile residents were stunned to hear about the brutality of the murders that seemed to lack a motive. Who would want a young mother, toddler, and a nanny killed? Based on the evidence from the scene, investigators had a theory— The nanny and two-year-old Nathan were home when someone broke in. After breaking inside the apartment, the killer took them into the bathroom where they were shot and killed execution style. Around 30 minutes later, 30-year-old Cherise Song came home after running some errands and entered the apartment. Once she got inside, the perpetrator bound and gagged her with packing tape. She was then led to the master bathroom where the nanny and her son were. The killer pulled out his gun and shot her once in the back of the head. In a matter of a half an hour, three people were left dead. All three of them had been shot at close range, and tape had been wrapped around Charisse's wrist and mouth. 
While investigators removed the packing tape from Charisse, they found a set of keys inside of her hands. Investigators also found tiny pieces of latex glove stuck to the residue of the tape used to bound Charisse. Four pieces of the latex gloves were found on the piece of tape across her mouth, and one more piece was found on the tape wrapped around her wrists. LAPD theorized that the shooter likely wore latex gloves during the shooting, and pieces of those gloves got stuck on the packing tape. The pieces were submitted for DNA testing in hopes that they could identify the shooter's DNA on them. When investigators searched the apartment, they saw no signs of forced entry. The windows were all perfectly intact, and the front door was left unlocked. Investigators also didn't find any signs of ransacking. There was an unopened jewelry box in the walk-in closet of the master bedroom that was left untouched. The police also found a suitcase containing three deposit certificates, each in the denomination of $10,000. Because everything valuable was still inside the apartment, the police didn't think the motive for the murders was a robbery. As LAPD officers looked for more evidence, a man appeared downstairs. It was Charisse's song's husband, Byung Song. In his arms, he carried the couple's other four-year-old son, Jim Woo. Officers escorted him off the property as soon as Byung tried to approach the apartment. They told him his wife, their two-year-old son, toddler, and nanny were all found dead inside the apartment. They'd been shot execution style, and he needed to come with them to the police station for questioning. LAPD officers took the four-year-old out of Byung's arms and put Byung in the back of a patrol car. As he got inside, news cameras watching the scene went crazy. The media had just discovered that three bodies were found inside the apartment, and now someone was being placed in the back seat of a cop car. The press went even crazier when they found out that that person was one of the victim's husbands. After Byung was escorted out of the complex, dozens of news reporters swarmed police officers. They all wanted to know if the husband was considered a suspect. But the police wouldn't provide a straight answer. They told the news reporters that Byung was only considered a person of interest because he wasn't home at the time, and because he was the husband of one of the victims. Other than that, the police weren't saying much. Once Byung arrived at the police station, officers informed him of everything they knew. His wife, their nanny, and son had all been murdered. They asked him if he knew anyone who might have wanted his family dead. He said no. They asked him if he was the one who did it. He said no. Officers performed a gunshot residue test on his hands to see if he had recently fired a gun. But the test came back negative for any gunshot residue. For the next several hours and into the late hours of the night, the police questioned Byung about the murders. He's the husband of one of the victims, so automatically, he's considered suspect number one. 
But throughout the interview, he denied having any involvement. He said he didn't do it and he didn't know who did. Finding no evidence against him, the police released him just after midnight. Although they released him, officers were suspicious. They thought he had to have known something that he wasn't telling them. So they started digging into Byung's background to see if they could uncover a possible motive for the murders or find anything that might suggest he was involved. Investigators learned all about Byung's past. Byung and Sharice Song lived together in that 150-unit apartment building in the Koreatown section of Los Angeles with their two-year-old son and four-year-old son. Byung was a well-known and respected former Korean Marine in Koreatown's garment district. He had worked his way up from a box boy to running his own wholesale business and factory in Koreatown. He and his wife, Sharice, regularly attended church services at the Koreatown Baptist Church. In 2002, Sharice began working as a bookkeeper at the couple's factory. Because she started going into the factory, she was away from home during the day. So they decided to hire a nanny to come over to the apartment and take care of Nathan while they were both at work. But it wasn't only the LAPD looking into the song's past. Since word about the murders broke, Koreatown Daily Newspapers covered the case. They were doing their own investigation into the songs. For days, reporters camped out outside of their wholesale business in the Garment District. They spoke with Song's fellow churchgoers at the Koreatown Baptist Church. Reporters even stalked anyone they thought might have information about the family. The more the police and reporters dug into their lives, the more they uncovered. The songs weren't your typical Korean-American family. On the outside, they appeared to have it all. A successful business, nice cars, an apartment in the heart of Koreatown. But the closer the police and the media looked into the songs, they uncovered so much more. Articles began popping up in local newspapers that Byung wasn't the loving husband and churchgoer he appeared to be. The papers claimed that at the time of the murders, Byung and Sharice were having marital problems. Newspapers were reporting that the couple fought a lot and were considering a divorce. In one Korean newspaper, the Korea Times, a woman who went to church with the songs told reporters that she thought Sharice lived alone and that she wasn't getting along with her husband because she never talked about him. There were even rumors of an alleged affair. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly... 
your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. On May 8, 2003, three days after the murders, Byung followed LAPD officers back to his apartment. He agreed to go with officers to conduct a walkthrough of the apartment to see if anything was missing or identify anything out of place. Byung told the officers that he didn't recognize a black plastic bag lying on the floor of the second bathroom. He said he'd never seen a trash bag like that in the bathroom before. But other than the trash bag, he said he didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. LAPD criminalists sent the black trash bag for testing. When they examined it, they recovered a palm print. They compared the palm print from the bag to Byung's palm, and they were a match. It was Byung's palm print on the mysterious bag. On May 16, 2003, now nine days after the murders, LAPD officers received their first major lead in the investigation. It implicated their initial suspect, Byung. The police received a typewritten, photocopied letter from an anonymous source. I'm going to read the letter exactly how it was written, but be warned that it has a handful of grammatical errors, but let me read it exactly how the LAPD did. Quote, Song's husband has a young girlfriend. That's why they had argument so much. He sent her to New York last month and will be back in July. Husband hired guys from Korea to be free from wife and guys went to Korea last week. I do not know how much he paid for this service to guys from Korea. To find out more, call Scott Song and Jay Lee, end quote. This mysterious letter seemed to implicate Byung in the murders. According to the letter's author, the motive was simple. Byung had a girlfriend. He didn't want to be with his wife, Charisse, anymore. And the only way out of the marriage was murder. At this point in the investigation, the LAPD had two significant pieces of evidence implicating Byung. Number one, the palm print found on the trash bag. And number two, an anonymous letter saying that he was having an affair and hired Korean hitmen to kill his wife, son, and nanny. But then there was a third piece of evidence that didn't seem to point to Byung as the shooter. The four pieces of latex glove found on the tape used to bound Charisse. Criminalists with the LAPD extracted two DNA profiles from the pieces. One of the profiles was consistent with Charisse's DNA. Unfortunately, the other DNA profile did not match Byung's DNA. For the next four weeks, LAPD officers watched Byung's every movement. They also executed search warrants on his personal computer and at his business. 
But besides the anonymous letter and palm print found on the trash bag, the LAPD didn't have any evidence directly linking him to the murders. The letter itself wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest because investigators had no idea who sent the letter and whether they were credible or not. They also couldn't arrest him on rumors alone. Yes, he might not have been the best husband in the world, but that doesn't make him a killer. So without the evidence, the police had no choice but to continue investigating and to consider other possible suspects. After months of investigating, the Miracle Mile murders investigation turned cold. Although officers continued to suspect Byung, they never found enough evidence to make an arrest. They also never found any evidence that implicated anyone else. So for the next several years, the case was cold, and the residents around Miracle Mile felt uneasy knowing that there was a killer on the loose. The next big break in the case didn't arrive until five years later. In 2008, the LAPD received a promising lead from the California Department of Justice. The California Department of Justice told Los Angeles that they found a possible match between the DNA found on the latex glove pieces and an individual. The individual was Robin Choi. Robin Choi lived in the same apartment complex at the time of the murders. Robin Choi and his family even lived on the same floor as the songs. The LAPD had a suspect other than Byung for the first time in nearly five years. On March 16, 2009, detectives brought Robin Choi in for questioning. They needed to find out why his DNA was on the latex gloves stuck to the packing tape used to bind the victims. Through a Korean translator, he agreed to sit down with investigators. Initially, the LAPD didn't tell him that he was considered a suspect in the murders. Instead, they simply told him that they had recently reopened the case and that they wanted to speak with everyone who lived in the apartment complex. At first, Robin Choi told detectives that the only thing he remembered from that day was coming home from work that evening and seeing the police cars parked outside. But then he said he regularly kept a journal where he documented his days. Maybe the journal would help jog his memory about that day. Based on his journal, his daily routine in 2003 involved driving his son to school in the morning, going to work at around 9 or 10 a.m., and then picking up his son from school at around 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon. Later in the interview, Choi seemed to remember more about the day of the murders. He said he went to his brother's dental office in Granada Hills and returned around lunchtime before picking his son up from school. He also said he visited his insurer at the 21st Century Insurance Company office around noon to renew his car insurance. As the interview continued, the more and more Choi seemed to remember. He told the detectives that after renewing his car insurance, he picked up his son at school, then went to his friend's store to play cards, 
which he did every Monday. On this particular day, Choi said that the card game ended early because one of the players had to leave. He said after the card game, he got home around 6 or 7 p.m. and found the police cars blocking his apartment. LAPD detectives asked Choi if he knew the songs. He told them that his parking spot at the apartment complex was directly next to the songs and that he had seen them a few times, but he had never spoken to them. Detectives then asked him if he had ever used plastic or latex gloves, and his answers seemed to surprise them. Through his interpreter, he said, yes. He said he regularly wore latex or plastic gloves because he said he had extremely sensitive hands, and he wore the gloves in order to protect them. He would often wear them around the house, even when he went to his car when he went shopping, Because of his sensitive hands, he regularly wore latex gloves. After the interview wrapped up, LAPD detectives went with Choi to his wife's office to speak with her about the murders. According to police reports, while they waited in Choi's wife's office, he allegedly commented to one of the detectives, quote, Did anybody allege something about me? Like somebody sending a letter? alleging me as someone who did it, end quote. One of the detectives turned to Choi and said, no. But Choi went on, quote, because I have been accused wrongfully so many times in the past, like taking tens of thousands of dollars, end quote. Around 8 o'clock p.m., LAPD detectives drove Choi back to the station for more questioning. By this point, they were confident they had their suspect. Detectives confronted Choi and told him that his DNA had been found at the crime scene and they weren't just talking to him about living in the complex. They were talking to him because they believed he was the one who did it. Right away, Choi denied having anything to do with it and told detectives that he had no idea how his DNA could have gotten there. He said he'd never been inside the Song's apartment. Detectives then made Choi retell his story about everything he did on the day of the murders. When he finished, they grilled him on how he could remember so much about a day almost six years earlier. Choi defended himself by saying that he only remembered so much about that day because of his journal. But according to LAPD detectives, the journal entry dated for May 5th, 2003, didn't contain many of the details he was now providing to them. They also believed that the journal entry for that day was far more detailed than any other day in the journal, which indicated to detectives that Choi was lying and was attempting to create a false alibi. At the end of the interview, LAPD detectives placed Robin Choi under arrest for the murders. Once he was in custody, they executed a search warrant at his mother's house where he was staying at the time. Inside the house, they found a brother typewriter. The typewriter was sent to the lab where a criminalist found that the typewriter's daisy wheel, the part of the typewriter containing the letter keys that imprint the paper, 
had the same exact typeface that had been used to write a portion of the anonymous tip letter that the police received in 2003. This made detectives believe that Robin Choi's typewriter was the one to type the letter. On August 28, 2009, Robin Choi was charged with three counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances, making him eligible for the death penalty. Leading up to his criminal trial, the prosecution and Choi's defense argued whether or not his previous fraud convictions could be admitted as evidence in the murder trial. Back in June of 2008, Choi pled guilty to one count of selling an unqualified and unregistered security and one count of grand theft with a special enhancement for losses exceeding $200,000. Between 1998 and 2003, he was accused of defrauding over $2 million out of 15 investors in what prosecutors described as a Ponzi scheme that targeted the Korean community. The prosecution argued that this previous fraud conviction proved a financial motive for the murders. And Choi was, quote, under serious major financial pressure and problems, and this was significantly disrupting his life at the time of the murders, end quote. While Choi's defense argued that the conviction would taint the jury, the court ultimately agreed with Choi, at least in part, The court thought that his previous fraud conviction could distract the jury from the evidence that was directly related to the murders, but said the prosecution could introduce evidence about Choi's financial situation at the time of the murders, but they couldn't specifically mention the previous conviction. At trial, Robin Choi's financial troubles took a back seat to the physical evidence, Instead of focusing on his fraud conviction, the prosecution focused on the DNA evidence. Two experts for the state testified about the DNA found on the latex gloves used to bind Charisse's mouth and wrists. Nick Sanchez, an LAPD criminalist specializing in DNA analysis, testified that he examined five contact points on the glove fragments that contain DNA that he labeled A through E. He compared them to DNA samples from Charisse, her husband Byung, and Robin Choi. He also sent A, B, and C samples to an outside lab for additional testing. Sanchez testified that he tested samples A, B, D, and E, but didn't test sample C because it was covered in blood and he worried that the test results wouldn't be as accurate as the other samples. According to Sanchez, samples A and B contained a major and a minor DNA profile, and samples D and E were found to have equal amounts from two contributors. He testified that all the DNA found in the four samples was consistent with either Charisse or Robin Choi's DNA. But the amount of DNA wasn't equal across all the samples. The major profile in sample A was consistent with Cherie Song's DNA, 
at a random probability rate of 1 in 240 trillion. But the minor profile in the same sample was only consistent with Choi at a random probability rate of 1 in 352 individuals, much smaller. In sample B, the major profile was consistent with Charisse, and as for the minor profile, Choi was consistent at a rate of 1 in 358,000. Again, much smaller than the amount of Charisse's DNA in the samples. But according to the LAPD's criminalist, these amounts are still very high amounts of Robin Choi's DNA. To put these numbers into perspective, if they were only two DNA profiles in the samples and Charisse's was one of them, the other DNA profile was 383 million times more likely to occur if Robin Choi was the other person as opposed to a person chosen at random. Similar results were also found in samples D and E. Angela Butler, a scientist at the Serological Research Institute, also testified to the DNA evidence. She was the one responsible for testing samples A and sample C. When it came to sample A, they found Charisse's DNA at a probability rate of 1 in 5 quintillions. But when it came to the second DNA profile, Robin Choi was consistent, but at a much lower probability rate. Choi was being the contributor, was only at a random probability rate of 1 in 50. On top of DNA evidence, there was also fingerprint evidence discussed at trial. When investigators sent the black trash bag found inside the apartment to the crime lab, they recovered a fingerprint consistent with Charisse's husband, Byung's palm print. They also found a fingerprint on the tape used to bind Charisse. Initially, the LAPD crime lab said that the prints belonged to Byung, not Robin Choi. But later on, Different experts said they couldn't conclusively say who the fingerprint belonged to, not Byung and not Robin Choi. In most trials, the prosecution will offer a motive for the crime. A motive isn't required to reach their burden of proof, but having a motive always helps. A jury wants to understand why someone did what they did, especially when it comes to a triple homicide. Yes, there's DNA that links Robin Choi to the murders, but why? Why did he murder these three innocent people? Throughout the trial, the prosecution never offered a motive. They hinted that it could have been financial based on Choi's prior fraud conviction, but that's it. During their closing arguments, the prosecution told the jury that simply they didn't have to have a motive. They don't know why Choi did what he did. But they also reminded the jury that they don't need to prove the motive in order to prove that Robin Choi was the shooter. According to the prosecution, the jury might not understand why Choi did it, but DNA evidence proves he was the shooter and that it was his DNA found on the latex gloves. 
Robin Choi's defense team took a very different approach. They argued that without a motive, the prosecution didn't really prove its case. And when it came to the DNA evidence, Choi's defense didn't think it was persuasive enough to warrant a guilty verdict. According to the defense, testing only three of the five samples was of, quote, virtually no statistical value, and that the prosecution's DNA experts had been unable to rule out the possibility there was a third person's DNA on the gloves, end quote. After closing arguments wrapped up, the case was sent to the jury for deliberations. After weighing the evidence, especially the DNA evidence, the jury found Robin Choi guilty of first-degree murder as to Sharice Song and second-degree murder for her son and the nanny. They also found the special allegations true, alleging that Choi had personally and intentionally discharged a firearm, resulting in death or great bodily injury. After finding Choi guilty on all counts, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an additional sentence of 105 years to life. Today, Robin Choi maintains his innocence. He continues to say that he had nothing to do with the murders and that he had never been inside that apartment, despite finding his DNA on the latex gloves. And it's not only Robin Choi who believe in his innocence. As of November 2021, the California Innocence Project announced that they are considering taking on his case. The only hard evidence linking Robin Choi to the murders is a small amount of his DNA found on fragments of latex gloves stuck to the duct tape on one of the victims. There's no indication of a clear motive, and there's no other evidence linking Choi to the Miracle Mile murders. Is it possible to perpetrate a triple homicide and only leave behind small traces of DNA? Or did a killer nearly get away with shooting three innocent people in cold blood and making one tiny mistake by using latex gloves while committing the murders? Was Robin Choi simply a pawn in a murder plot? Whatever the case, two matters remain certain. Three innocent lives were brutally taken, and Koreatown will never be the same. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. In addition, for supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. 
Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers. Tony A, Nicole L, David B, Nicole G, Paula G, Christine B, Karen D, Nancy H, Sherry A, Jamie Y, Ashley Q, and Michael D. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. Your support means the world to me. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.